0: Visit www.polsonandnace.com or call 202 463 1999.
1: Today on CityCast DC, it is day two of our Spy Week, presented by the International Spy Museum. It's a week worth of podcast and newsletter content about secret agents and covert goings on right here in DC. Who's that behind you? Are you being followed? It's not paranoia, because if you're in D.C., there's a non-zero chance that you're being tailed. Former CIA agent Lindsey Moran tells us how to spot a spy in D.C., whether it's your neighbor, best friend, or that guy hitting on you at the bar. Today is Tuesday, May 9th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what D.C. is talking about. So, Lindsay, it's estimated that there are like 10,000 spies in D.C., which that's kind of a lot of spies. With all of this Spy Week talk and prep, I'm like a little bit paranoid just going to the store. I'm like, is that a spy? Anybody who asks me a question about myself or my work, I'm like, is that a spy? (laughs) Level with me, how many spies really are in the D.C. area? Countless. You cannot swing a dead cat in D.C. without (laughs) hitting a
2: spy or foreign agent. And... I'm not really joking. No, but that's a good mindset that you have going out in D.C. because the truth is D.C., like some other big capital city like Vienna and Austria or Berlin, it's a spy hub. And that makes perfect sense. This is the seat of power in the United States. A lot of other countries want to get information. And so while D.C. is not crawling with spies like I was a spy, former CIA officers or CIA officers, because we're operating overseas, it is crawling with foreign spies. And I'm a DC native and still have a house in DC. And even though I've been out of the CIA for a number of years, I still in some ways conduct myself like a spy when I'm in Washington. I'm always looking for surveillance. I'm always looking for cameras. I'm wary of people who chat me up in bars or restaurants, particularly around Embassy Row, the foreign embassies, those whole areas are crawling with spies. So you are very right to beware and be on your guard.
1: See, so my paranoia is justified. It's not paranoia if they really are out there, you know, (laughs) they are out there.
2: And it's kind of funny because before I got into the spy business, you know, before I joined the CIA, It never really occurred to me that, you know, you think of D.C. as a city that's crawling with bureaucrats and as like a really boring city. But once you start to peel back the layers of Washington, D.C., you realize that there's this kind of hot underbelly of the city of like espionage and intrigue.
1: So being from the D.C. area, do you think that played an interest into your becoming a spy in the first place, like being in D.C.? Absolutely. When I was young, growing up in the D.C. and
2: the 70s and 80s or the D.C. area. It was my childhood dream to be a spy. And part of that was because I became obsessed with this character, Harriet the Spy, and kind of fashioned my life after her. But oh, my God,
1: my favorite book as a
2: kid. I'm not even kidding. It's timeless. Harriet the Spy is absolutely timeless. I would, you know, at the age of nine or whenever I was reading those books, I would I got a little notebook and I would spy on my parents and my brother and my neighbors, because there was really nobody else to spy on. But aside from that, my father did top secret work for the U.S. government. He wasn't a CIA officer. He didn't work for the Central Intelligence Agency, but he designed ships for the U.S. Navy. And that's the kind of interesting thing about D.C. and what makes D.C. such a unique and target rich city for spies from other countries is that it's not necessarily that they're targeting people at the FBI or the CIA to become double agents, but there are countless people in the Washington area who have access to information that other governments want. There's all kinds of military personnel here. There are people who do research and development for the military. Everybody In D.C., either by virtue of their own job or by virtue of people they know, even their neighbors, has some kind of what we call placement and access in the spy business. And that is placement and access to information that other governments want.
1: Is that something that makes D.C. different from other cities in terms of spies, that there's lots of people here who are connected to that kind of information?
2: Absolutely. I mean, New York is a spy rich city, too, because you've got the United Nations there. Other big cities, there are certainly spies and foreign spies where there are installations and consulates. But D.C. is really the hub of it all, the center of it all. So, you know, if you're a Russian intelligence officer or a Chinese intelligence officer or any one of our adversaries or frankly, even some of our allies, if you get stationed to Washington, D.C., where you're going to go try to recruit Americans to commit espionage, to commit treason, basically, to sell out their country. There's no more target rich place than D.C. because everybody is somehow connected to the government. And a lot of people have clearances in D.C. and those are the kinds of people that are going to be targeted by foreign spies. But... Lest you think, oh, I don't have a clearance. Nobody's going to go after me. Well, maybe you know someone who does. Maybe your boyfriend does or your father does. Or, you know, you own a shop at the base of a building that has a lot of people who work for the CIA or work for Defense Intelligence Agency. You are a target, too. That's what we call
1: placement. Does D.C. being such a target rich city, like how does that impact sort of the ability to maintain your cover, so to speak? Does it make it more difficult? How does it impact that? Well,
2: we used to always joke at the agency that the hardest place for us to maintain our covers was in Washington, D.C. First of all, especially for someone like me who grew up in this area, and I have had when I was working for the agency and was operating undercover, I was known to all of my agency colleagues by a pseudonym, an agency assigned pseudonym. and My first name was Janice. And so I was out once at the Uptown Theater, and one of my high school friends was like, hey, Lindsay. And the person that I was with who was an agency colleague referred to me as Janice. So then I had to kind of stumble to explain why was this person calling me Janice. So DC is a hard place to maintain your cover, but not just for people like me who grew up around here. If you're working undercover in the agency, part of it is the fact that DC is a smart city. People here are savvy. They know that uh, CIA is here. They know state departments here, that FBI is here. So even if you're just like an ordinary bureaucrat, and that's really all you work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you know, but you travel a lot there are going to be people suspecting that you might be a spy. So it is one of the hardest places to maintain your cover. When I got overseas, nobody suspected that I was a spy. But DC is a tough place to to maintain your cover. The other thing I want to say about that is DC is, you know, it's a city for workaholics. And it's a city where your job very much defines who you are. DC is filled with power brokers. And so having like a cool job gets you status in DC. And so when you're working undercover at the CIA, and you have to act to everyone else like you have this really boring, lowly job. Not only is it hard to maintain your cover, but it's hard to have a social life if you're single because you're coming across as someone who's just a boring bureaucrat who has nothing interesting to say.
1: Oh, my God. I feel like my ego would not allow for me to be a very good spy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We had a saying at headquarters, like, you got to park your ego at the door because you're doing one of the coolest jobs in the world, but you can't talk about it with anyone.
3: David, thanks for chatting with me. So like you and I both have cars in the DC metro area and sometimes they're great, but sometimes they can be a hassle. And I heard you had car issues, man.
0: Yes, my car like me is old and falling apart. (laughs) And so I wanted to get it fixed. But one of the truly unpleasant tasks I find in the world is getting your car fixed because you have to take it usually somewhere extremely distant, extremely inconvenient, arrange some alternate form of transportation. And so I heard about Rota, rota rota.com and I went on the rota.com website And they will come and pick your car up, take it from you, and then do the work and bring it back to you. And so I made an appointment on Roto, which was easy as pie, beautiful user interface, um, for the work that I wanted done. The valet showed up at around 10 o'clock at my house as exactly on time. Very easy. Just handed him my keys. He drove off with my car. About an hour later, April called me. She said, here are some things that we found with your car in addition to what you want to do. She sent me videos that Michael- Wait, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm not a car nerd, so I like want to know the nitty gritty of what's happening because I, I don't know stuff. A
0: million percent. They sent me this video. There was a particular belt that was had broken and they sent me a video of it and they sent me a list of sort of, here are the things that were recommended. Here are the things that seemed urgent to fix and I could choose what I wanted to fix and sent that back to them, which took me like, three minutes. Michael, the technician, fixed it. They then texted me and said, oh, your car's on the way back. My car was back in front of my house at 2.30. I'd given it to them at 10. It was back in front of my house that afternoon. Also, note, the valet did a much better job parking in front of my house than I do.
3: (laughs) Don't they always?
0: So much closer to the curb. And it was an incredibly pleasant, super easy experience. And they were very trustworthy they were clear about what they were going to fix, and it was incredibly convenient.
3: Yeah. So this like seems like a dream. Uh, I have used them before, but it's been a bit. Would you use them again for something like this? I would like
0: use Rhoda again in a second. I would use and they have a discount for us too for CityCast listeners. So if you nice. go to Roto.com, they have the discount code CityCast20, and you get 20% off.
3: Sweet. Uh, plots. David. Thank you so much for talking with me again CityCast listeners you get 20% off off any Rota service up to $100 using the code CityCast20 so go to Rota.com that's R-O-D-A dot com to book your appointment
1: When was the last time you went to the theater? Well we have a new show for you to check out done this work, you know, you sound like somebody who has the temperament to be a great spy, but you have to have heard some wild stories about not so great spies. What are some of the, the wildest spy stories you've encountered here in DC?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, there was a kind of famous case a couple of years ago with this Russian woman, Maria Botina, who was not necessarily like a Russian intelligence officer, but she was definitely an access agent. And so she was sort of put on the ground in D.C. and elsewhere in the United States to target men in positions of power and particularly in the NRA and at the top of the Republican Party. And what really cracked me up about this case is she was like not only a honeypot out of central casting, but kind of like a (laughs) bad spot. I mean, she was so obvious. And she would hit on these really powerful men and they always fall for it. I'm not going to say this is uniquely true to dudes, but the old honeypot trick works so well on the savviest, most sophisticated, most powerful men. You know, these ancient doddering guys who suddenly think, oh, my gosh, this young, hot Eastern European woman is in love with me and it works every time. Um, So there are many stories. You know, I always joke with my DC, particularly my DC male friends. Yeah. If you're in a bar and a beautiful young woman with an Eastern European accent is acting super interested in you, I hate to break it to you, but she's probably not really interested in you. She might just be A spy.
1: (laughs) And also, I mean, like, we have to talk about it because I feel like it does take a little bit of like honesty about yourself. Like if you're a five and you're being approached at a bar by a 10. Some part of you has to be like, I don't know if this is really on the up and up. Like, maybe it does take a little bit of honesty and insight into who you are and and the situation to sort of avoid that from happening. But I bet a lot of guys out there will throw this training out the window if if a hottie is talking to them.
2: 100%. I've seen it a number of times. Even when we were in training, there were always some guys also in training who kind of wanted to like flex their cia creds in the bar and you know would answer like if someone asks you what do you do you're supposed to make yourself sound as boring as possible and as hard as that is on the ego and being a single person you know i would do it like i work in regional affairs in the basement of a building in washington but a lot of the guys would say things like well I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. You know, it's like, come on. And it's funny to me now because I do, maybe it's my spy training. Maybe it's just my personality. I do like to kind of hang out at bars and do my work there and eavesdrop on other people. And so a lot of times when I'm in the Washington area, I'll be eavesdropping on a conversation and I'll think this seems like a scenario right
1: out of training. And usually it's a man who's falling for it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So How would someone listening be able to tell if they're talking to a foreign agent or a spy, like, like, give us some tips how you can spot this?
2: Yeah, well, number one, you pointed out the obvious. And again, it's hard for some people to accept. But yeah, if you're a five, and you're being hit on or approached by a 10, something's up there. I'm sorry, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, I'm 53 years old. And if like a young 20 something dude comes up and starts talking to me, I know either he's got like a fetish for old women or like (laughs) something's up there. He's trying to get information. So that's one thing is just kind of, you know, when you're in these social situations, and I would do this when I was trying to recruit foreign agents when I was overseas, I would approach someone and it starts out kind of personal, but if someone's asking a lot of questions about your job or really interested in where you work, what kind of work you do, those kind of questions, particularly if you have a job that's sensitive in some way, shape or form, those should be red flags to you that maybe this person is trying to gather information. Or if somebody does what we call bumps you, you know, they come up and they have some kind of really sort of obscure excuse for why they were supposed to talk to you. I used to love doing bumps because I would, it's so much easier for women. I would work it like seamlessly into the scenario. I remember going to like a lounge where a target was sitting on a couch and, and acting like I had been sitting there earlier and I dropped my earring. And so getting this guy up and looking for my earring with me. And then that was just an opportunity to spark a conversation. If you're not a paranoid person, you might just think, oh, this is a friendly, you know, encounter. But in the D.C. area, you always want to be wary of those kind of weird, serendipitous ways that you might meet someone because maybe they're a spy.
1: What were some of the other tactics that you enjoyed or were really good at?
2: I mean, I'll talk to anyone. And one of the things that the agency looks for when they're looking for undercover operatives like I was, is they're looking for people who are extroverts. The agency has a very formulaic way of hiring operations officers. And so you have to be able to go up to anyone from any race any nationality who's younger than you older than you maybe somebody who's uh, misogynist maybe someone who's uh you know hates Americans and you have to find some way that you're going to be able to have a conversation with this person and not only have a conversation but secure a second meeting it comes down to social skills and street smarts people think you know oh, getting into the CIA's clandestine service, it is one of the most competitive organizations and entities that you can get into. But they're not looking for the brainiest person or the brawniest person. And it's not like James Bond or Jason Bourne. They're looking for people with basic social skills and street smarts, the ability to think really quickly on your feet, looking for those clues. What are those openings that you can insert yourself into the conversation?
1: Oh, my God. If podcasting doesn't work out for me, I might try my hand at being
2: a spy. (laughs) I think you seem really personable and friendly, like someone people want to talk to. I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me, and I think for a lot of other operations officers, is our extroversion. It really helps us. But in order to be a really good spy, you have to listen. I've always maintained that women make better spies. And one of the reasons is that I think We're conditioned a little more to sit back and listen. And we're also like, just as I said, savvier. From a very young age, women are conditioned to know, to have situational awareness, to know like, how safe am I right now? You know, we know not to walk alone in dark parking lots. These are things that guys don't ever think of. So we have that kind of natural security awareness and what we call operational security hardwired into our brains.
1: That's such a good point. How can people tell if they're being followed or if maybe they're under surveillance?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. I had all of us who were in the clandestine service have extensive what we call surveillance detection training. And so that is driving around, walking around and looking for clues that someone is following you. If you can't master surveillance detection, you're never going to be a good spy because you'll end up dragging surveillance to your meeting with your foreign agent, and then your foreign agent will be either arrested or, you know, in some parts of the world killed. So it's a very important aspect of spy training. And it takes time. It's not something that comes to people naturally. But there are some tricks of the trade using mirror, using window panes as mirrors to see if people are behind you, executing like left hand turns if you're walking so that you have that opportunity to look back and see if someone's behind you and taking kind of circuitous routes. We have a rule of thumb with surveillance detection that if you see the same person, it's not like, you know, you're walked down a street and there's one person behind you as you're walking down the street in order to really confirm surveillance, you have to have seen that person over time and distance in multiple places. Now, really good surveillance will change their clothes. So it can be hard to detect surveillance, but I still do it to this day. I mean, I have no reason to think that anybody's following me to this day, but my kids laugh at me because I'll get in the car and I'm looking in the rearview mirror and sometimes driving ad hoc surveillance detection routes to make sure we're not being followed, which, of course, we're not.
1: (laughs) I mean, once a spy, always a spy. It's
2: like in your blood. It's in my blood. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, you can... To take the girl out of the CIA, but you can't take the CIA out of the girl. And Washington, D.C. in particular, because I'm so aware of the fact that, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, the city is crawling with spies. So I'm looking out for them all the time. And they're not going to be dressed in like trench coats, you know, <laughs> with like a hat and dark glasses. They're going to be ordinary looking people.
1: I mean, this, being a spy does sound kind of fun, but it also sounds kind of lonely and isolating. Do you miss it? Do you miss this life? That's a great question.
2: Every once in a while, I do miss it. But it you're absolutely right on there. It is, it is lonely and it can be isolating. There are very few people who you can talk to and share aspects of your life. And even within the CIA itself, the operations that you're running are so compartmentalized, you can't even talk to your colleagues about those. But more than that, it's like maintaining a social life can be extremely extremely difficult. Because if you're going to have an intimate relationship with someone, you want to be able to share everything with that person. And that is just downright impossible if you're operating undercover. So it can be very lonely, very isolating. I mean, I must admit... Sometimes I miss the thrill of it. I loved training. I loved being operational. D.C., you can take spy tours of D.C. They're available in D.C. And those are fantastic because they show you all of these kind of like neat little spy things that have happened throughout history in the D.C. area.
1: Lindsay Moran, thank you so much for being here. The book is blowing my cover. So if folks want more incredible, interesting spy stories, definitely check that out. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Before you go, here's some quick news. Mayor Muriel Bowser has named Dr. Francisco Diaz as the interim director of the DC Department of Forensic Sciences. If you didn't know, he is currently the chief medical examiner. This leadership change coincides with the contentious plan to move the DFS crime scene unit to the DC Police Department. The agency also hopes to have its forensic testing accreditation restored soon. Meanwhile, the city's Department of Human Services announced on Friday that the unhoused population in D.C. has increased more than 10% since last year. This is the first increase in years. The data comes from the annual point-in-time count, which takes place on one night every winter. The most recent count revealed that there are almost 5,000 unhoused people living in D.C. Also, Alexandria now has a process to review and consider renaming an estimated 41 streets honoring Confederate leaders and controversial historical figures. The city expects to consider about three streets a year through a process that includes committee and public hearings. And lastly, today's D.C. life hack is once again courtesy of the Spy Museum. It's a big place. Most visitors spend two to three hours there, and the exhibits are spread over two floors. So you've kind of got to pace yourself. They've got handy signs along the floor to help you know how far you've come and what's ahead. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoy the show, share it with your friend who you think might be a spy, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then.